blessed to have the sermon today of Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Manual, God with us. Hello again. Um, before I get started on my message, I want to just explain one thing, why the missing tie. Um, I'm still having that issue with the bulging disc on my neck, and it, the tie just doesn't work with it right now. So for those of you that would prefer me in a tie, I apologize. So at this time of year, you may have noticed that you are bombarded with lots of messaging about a certain activity. Something that is going to take place in, uh, what, a couple of days, in fact. We're bombarded with messages, aren't we, for, I don't know, seems like from Halloween onwards or whatever it is, about Christmas. And we, uh, we get that messaging from the TV, we get it from radio, we get it from online material, we get it in the stores. Is anybody ready for it to be done yet? Yeah. And I haven't had a reason really in the last few weeks to go to uh, many stores and, and hear the background music, but I did, I did yesterday, and that, that, that can drive you nuts, can't it, with all the Christmas jingles and, and so on. But then we also get messaging that is scriptural. And I don't know about you, but that, that, that's kind of a little bit more of a challenge, right? Because we've got these beautiful scriptures describing actual events that took place, but they're being delivered at this time of year instead of maybe another time of year. So I'm just going to add to that for a few minutes. I apologize, but hopefully this will make sense. So, you know, one of those scriptures that you see, either part of it used, um, you know, it's, it's in greeting cards, it's, it's on posters inside of stores, especially Christian bookstores, things of that nature. Uh, you, may, you may have part of this. It's in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to, to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Very familiar passage. And we have another one over in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8. <clears throat> now there were in the same country shepherds, living out of the fields, out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. 
Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find, him, you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was, uh, w- there was with the angel a multitude the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. As I read that passage, I just had a, a recollection myself. I may have actually said verse 14 in school when I was, you know, about eight years old in the nativity play that we would have done. These, these scriptures are beautiful. The beautiful passages, they are hopeful passages. They are the fulfillment of God's promise that he would send his only son to come and save us. I mean, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it, that this actually happened, that that God became man to save us from our sins. And not just a man, didn't just show up as a fully formed man, but as this tiny baby with all of the vulnerability that we enter the world with. Just, it's incredible when you stop and think about it. These are beautiful passages. And then another one here in Micah, just a very short one, chapter 5 and verse 2, saying, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So that God, who is everlasting, Jesus Christ, comes down as this babe and dwells among, amongst us. Emmanuel, God with us. All these things are true. They all happened. They are in our Bible. Now, if you're looking on the screen, maybe you can double check, but they're in our Bible, right? And, and sometimes in the past, we've not read these scriptures very much, maybe because we feel like they've been co-opted into a practice that is taking place at this time of year. And yet, they are in scripture. And it's sad and it's frustrating that people don't get it. It's frustrating that they're used at this time of year in a religious practice that has nothing to do with Christianity at all. Nothing to do with the truth of what God was trying to bring and is bringing to the world. It's frustrating. December 25th, the historical winter solstice has nothing to do at all with the birth of Jesus Christ not even related. It is, in fact, an ancient practice of of a pagan, unbiblical worship. False deities were worshipped on these days by many different cultures, many ancient cultures before the birth of Jesus. In the Western tradition, it is documented by the Encyclopedia Britannica. It states in ancient Rome, December 25th, was a celebration of the unconquered sun, 
marking the return of longer days, the winter solstice and the sun returning in its power. It followed Saturnalia, a festival where people feasted and exchanged gifts. Very old, old tradition. And I'm not opposed to people giving me gifts, don't get me wrong. Anytime you want to give me a gift, it's fine. But there's this pagan practice long predates the advent of Jesus Christ, the appearing of the Son of God as a babe, and is completely disconnected with the truth of Scripture. The church in Rome began celebrating Christmas on December 25th in the 4th century during the reign of Constantine, the first Christian emperor, Christian emperor, in air quotes, possibly to weaken pagan traditions. Though even, even the adoption of Christmas into the, the Christian practice by Constantine wasn't even an honest endeavor. It was to weaken pagan traditions and consolidate power. It goes on to say, the precise origin of assigning December 25th as the birth date of Jesus is unclear. And, it, you know, again, these are secular sources. It's unclear. Shouldn't there be a scripture that says this was the date? I would have thought so. December 25th was first identified as the date of Jesus' birth by a fellow that I had not heard of before, Sextus Julius Africanus. Almost sounds like one of those made-up Latin-esque names, doesn't it? And he came up with this idea in 222, uh, 221 AD and later became the universally accepted date. One widespread explanation of the origin of this date is that December 25th, as we kind of alluded to before, was the Christianizing of the Deus Solus Invicti Nati, if I'm saying that right, the day of the birth of the unconquered son. A popular holiday in the Roman Empire that celebrated the winter solstice as a symbol of the resurgence of the sun and casting away of winter and the heralding of the rebirth of spring and summer. And this, of course, is just one facet. We, I think many of us have done very deep dives into the traditions behind this festival and how, how much pagan influences are in the practice that Christians uh, follow today. Again, from the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, Soyal is the um, winter solstice celebration of the Hopti Indians of North Arizona. Did you realize that? And it's around the same time. And their ceremonies and rituals included purification, dancing, and sometimes gift-giving. Another winter solstice celebrated by a people on a completely different continent practicing the giving of gifts. Now, maybe it's something to do with the innate generosity of human beings, but I kind of don't think so. There's definitely some connections here either spiritual or through human tradition. The Persian festival of Yalda, or Shab'i Yalda, is a celebration of the winter solstice in Iran that started in ancient times. It marks the last day of the Persian month of Azar, 
and Yalda is viewed traditionally as the victory of light over dark and the birthday of the sun god Mithra. And if you know anything about Mithra, I call the, the sun god Mithra a pre-corruption. Because Mithra in, in its, uh, you know, its pagan origins and the pagan stories dies and is resurrected. And it was also went through a baptism as well, a baptism in Bull's blood, which goes back to Baal worship and all the way back you know, into Mesopotamia and the corrupt practices there. So Mithra is a very uh, sneaky, ancient, pagan god. Families celebrate together with special foods like nuts and pomegranates, and some stay awake all night long to welcome the morning sun. Hmm. Well, that's not a new Sunday church tradition thing at all, is it? A sunrise service celebrated all the way back in Iran to the sun god Mithra. So we've got a lot of tradition, and I'm just touching on a few of the things that, that we can dig into here. And it's not my purpose today to, to, to bash Christianity, I mean to bash Christmas, because there's a lot of genuine people that are genuinely misguided and maybe just have not asked the questions like we have fortunately asked, maybe from God's direction or somebody coming into our life that has, has moved our thought process away and started to ask questions like, why do we do the things that we do as a Christian practice? Why is Christmas practiced by the vast majority of the Sunday Christian world. What is the truth really about in regards to the birth of Jesus? And so there's, there's so many people that have just not asked those questions, have they? And they're genuinely mistaken and generally uh, misdirected and fooled into thinking that it's okay to celebrate the birth of Jesus at the time of an ancient pagan festival. After all, well, if we are Christianizing, if we take the Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic Church tradition, which was, let's Christianize the pagan festivals so that we can stop them being barbarians, we can get them to understand salvation through Jesus Christ, and maybe encourage them to pay some tithe along the way, all of that, what is wrong with that? Isn't that Christianizing? Aren't we purifying these practices? Well, this, if you really think about it, is a completely dysfunctional approach and practice. And of course, it's not really all that surprising. Human beings are full of dysfunction personally, and so it's hardly surprising that we, we end up with these dysfunctional religious practices as well. But does it really matter? Does it really matter that we Christianize pagan practice or pagan worship? Well, I think it does, and for two very clear reasons. So the first one is found in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 1. 
And the context of this is, of course, after the law has been given, after everything has been defined in the law of God and, and documented, we read this. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, your, the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Here's pretty plain, isn't it? So after Israel is to enter the land, clear it out, dispossess the land, remove the people that have been living there and practicing there, and by all accounts, if we jump back 400 years to Abraham, God was giving them time to either go the direction they did or repent, and they didn't. And so they are being expelled from the land, and Israel is taking the land. And God says, burn everything of their false practices and their false ways. Under every green tree, on the mountains, the hills, burn it all. Destroy it all. Why? Why? It's okay to ask why, but why? Why is this important? Well, if we look at the history, we see that it's the land itself was defiled with hideous practices. Awful practices. Somewhat akin to the kinds of activities, the terrorist activities that we saw Hamas do just a couple of months ago. Evil practices in the land. The worship of things that are not gods. The worship of spirits that were nothing more than fallen angels, Satan, his demons. They practiced sexual rituals to these gods. They cut and mutilated their own bodies. They revealed in every sinful and unclean act in worship all of these, or they reveled in all of these false deities. They even offered up the most precious possessions that they had, which was their firstborn sons. Think about that for a minute, of how corrupt a version of God's truth, of God's salvation, that he was going to bring through his firstborn son. And these people had just turned into monsters, burning alive, their firstborn, to Moloch, and many other deities, false gods. Some cultures did these things at the time of the winter solstice, as a way to appease the gods, as a way to bring back the warmth of the sun and give that, that precious life-giving food and, and rain, water that they needed. I cannot imagine really a more obnoxious idea to God that we would take something that has these kinds of roots, these kinds of imagery, take that 
and worship him with it. I mean, would you want that? God does not want that. He wants nothing to do with that. And that's why he specifically said, you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Discard all of that. Now, it'd be one thing if they didn't know how to worship God. But of course, he gave them the practice. He gave them the instructions of how to worship him. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But what did they do? Well, over time, not very much time, about a generation, the people of Israel started to engage in those practices, bringing those into, alongside with the worship of Yahweh. In our Western Christian tradition, we have not done any better. As Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made by corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And so we too, as a broader Christian tradition, worship God in the manner in which the ancient pagan people worshipped uh, with lies and falsehoods. And so, we have Christmas. God makes it clear, don't bring that. Don't bring those practices. No matter how much they look nice on the outside, no matter how much you like presents, Matt, don't engage in this. This is not how I want you to worship me. But if that's not enough, he does give us a second reason as to why this matters. And the second reason is found, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. After he tells Israel to not worship him with these false pagan practices, he gives them the correct way to worship him, which of itself is very, very revealing because that's the kind of God he is. He wants to teach us things. He wants to engage with us and help us to learn as we are worshiping And the other part of this is how we are made. Because I think we all can recognize in ourselves that we are going to worship something, aren't we? Even atheists worship something. Oftentimes their own creation, their own intellect, their own scientific or humanistic goals or ideals. We are built as people to worship something. We might get drawn into other false gods, ancient practices, or worship other things that seemingly give us pleasure or joy. Addictions, other people. We are built to worship. And if we're not worshiping God, then we are worshiping things that are negative to us. <clears throat> it is our truest nature, I think, to be one with, with God. And that's how he's defined us. He's, he's, he's made us this way. To be fully integrated with him. 
And when we're not, we will find other things to worship. Gods of our own making. So God gives us an alternative to these pagan options, to all these false options that provide no self, no satisfaction, really. And I think specifically in regards to Christmas, he gives us a true, holy, and wholesome, and righteous, and powerful prophetic practice instead of what we have in Christmas. He says in verse 5, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses, out of all your tribes, to put his name for his uh, to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and sh- you shall rejoice in all which the, you have put uh, have put your hand, and you, sh- you and your household, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Let me ask you a question. What is this dwelling place that God is referring to? Anybody? Again? The tabernacle. Consider the time here. They're in the wilderness. God has given them his law, and then he has said, I want you to worship me in the place where I have placed my name. I want you to rejoice before me at that place. Worship me where I have blessed you. It is the tabernacle. The sacrifices are given there. They're beautiful. They're meaningful. They they allow us to reconcile with God with our fellow man. They, they, they redeem the people. And of course, they point forward towards our ultimate redemption, which is Jesus Christ. But it, I think it goes beyond just the daily sacrifices that are listed here. It also culminates in a special, holy, and joyous time we call the Feast of Tabernacles, which is where the Lord has placed his name. In verse 7 it says, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord God has blessed you. It might remind us of another passage in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 39. And also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. And on the first day there shall be Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees and branches and palm trees and bowers of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we have this 
as we, as we know, as we practice, as, as we benefit from this beautiful time of the Feast of Tabernacles, the end of year celebration. It's not a religious practice asking God to bring back the warm sun. It's not a religious practice where we're sacrificing something so that we can appease him and, and he can bring, bring back the warm sun and the, and the, the spring and the, and the food and the crops that we need to survive. It's the reverse. It's actually a celebration of giving thanks to what he has already given us. And again, this is how God works. He gives us the blessing and then just asks us to tithe on that. He asks us to be thankful for that in reverse. Worshiping God and thanking him for providing for us, for giving us what we need to get through the winter and into the spring, where he has also prepared another holy season, pointing towards part of his salvation that Jesus fulfilled. He showers blessings on us, on the just and the unjust. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 5, as we studied not too long ago. And so this is my point. Not only does God want nothing to do with the days and the practices that are of themselves evil, that have had terrible crimes committed in those practices, he has for us a better a more real set of practices that mean real things, that are tied to the reality of his plan of salvation, tied to the real truth that he is revealing to us about our relationship with God, with each other, and the future events that he is going to bring about on this earth. Christmas, or the more accurate Actually, the celebration of the winter solstice is a poor replacement for the Feast of Tabernacles. And it only really serves to obscure the truth. I used to say this to people after I made the decision and I, I left the Baptist church that I'd grown up in. And I was trying to explain to people <laughs> what I was what crazy thing I was going to be doing now. I used to say, hey, you guys have Christmas for once, one day in a year. We have eight days that we get to worship and celebrate and be blessed by God. And that is true. He's given us these tremendously rich and beautiful practices. And unfortunately, these pagan ones just obscure the truth, as I said. Take the name that Mary and Joseph were told to give their son that we read earlier. Emmanuel. It means God with us. Right. God with us. What does that have to do with the winter solstice? Where's the connection? Where's the historical background for that to be when God would reveal the birth of his son? Think about that. We've had this pagan practice, and then, oh, and by the way, I'm going to 
bring my son to be born on this day. There's no historical connection. There's no connection with the Old Testament. God doesn't do anything unless he reveals it to his servants, the prophets, and in our case, the saints. And so we, do, we don't have any historical prophetic connection. But we do have a very strong prophetic and historical connection with the practice of the Feast of Tabernacles. It goes all the way back to Israel. And it points forward in time when God would dwell with us. Emmanuel, God with us. After God had given all the instructions on the creation of the temple, the, the priestly practices <coughs> that went with it, and the sacrifices, he says this in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 43. He says, There I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister me as priests. I will dwell among them, among the children of Israel, and will be their God. Emmanuel. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt that I may dwell amongst them. I am the Lord their God. This was the very first Emmanuel, right? This is the historical context. And the person that was saying these words was the one that would come as the babe that we would name Jesus. Emmanuel doing the exact same thing that he had done with Israel in the wilderness. Isn't that beautiful? That is just a beautiful story and poetry and the power of God to intervene in history. And his will will be done. And he will dwell with us. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, coming in the middle of a series of judgments and prophecies regarding Israel and other nations around them, we have this passage that is so misunderstood at this time of year. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelled in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has a light shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of the harvest. The harvest. What does the harvest have to do with the winter solstice? What harvest takes place in the middle of winter? Well, unless you have a greenhouse, I suppose. Not a lot of greenhouses in the ancient world, I don't think. We've got the wrong time of year for a harvest. There is no harvest in winter. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and of the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And there's a reference here, you know, and you, you'll see that 
maybe in your Bibles, about this day of Midian, which is the battle that, that Gideon fought against the Midianites, the series of campaigns against the Midianites, which might have actually been around the feast time frame. And the reason I say that, if you cast your minds back to the story of Gideon, when God comes and finds him and says, hey, you mighty man of valor, what was he doing? He's hiding in a wine press, <laughs> the mighty man of valor, and he was threshing wheat, a fall harvest, a fall harvest grain, around and moving towards the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so I think that is some of the context here. That God is, is bringing back from history. He's tying in this, as we'll read, the birth of, the, of his son in human flesh. He's tying it in with the relieving of Israel's oppressors. Lifting the yoke of those burdens. And Gideon himself and the, the story of, of the, the day of Midian is, I think, of itself an example of a greater story of liberation, which is the founding story of liberation in the scriptures, right? Which is Israel's liberation out of Egypt, out of the Egyptian bondage, breaking the oppressor and the heavy yoke of slavery. And what did they do when they left Egypt? They went out into the wilderness, and where did they live? In tabernacles and tents. That's where they lived. Living the Feast of Tabernacles, which is why part of the reason why God, as we read earlier, instituted the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, to remind the people of what he did and the importance of what he did. So right here in the great prophecy that we're about to get to the next part of, about the birth of our Savior, could it be that it was in the context of liberation and tabernacling with God? Because he says, in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know, we could spend an entire other sermon on just that and the beauty that's in that. I mean, I'm always struck by how passages written in Hebrew can translate as poetic in English and how God made that happen with the translators. But more than that is this truth. There is this son, the Emmanuel, God with us, tabernacling with us, he doesn't remain a little baby. He doesn't stay as a vulnerable child. He turns into this wonderful being. 
this mighty counselor, an advocate for us, a guide for us, mighty God, not just a great rabbi, a great teacher. Isaiah says something even more shocking. He says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, but then he says, everlasting father. Now, does that mean, as Jesus said, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the father? Could be. Or does that mean there's something more here about him being in the role of a father? Either way, it is clear. This child does not stay as a child. He's not a defenseless babe. He grows and matures and becomes what he was already from ancient of days. God with us. When we look forward in time, we do not see Christmas celebrated. You notice that? I have not been able to find a single prophecy where it says that everybody will have to celebrate Christmas in the kingdom of God. Nobody asked that question. You ever asked that question? A lot of people in Sunday Christian world have not asked that question, clearly. Why isn't Christmas mentioned in Revelation, in Daniel, in Isaiah? Why is that the case? There are no prophetic events that resound with the images of Christmas trees and Yule logs. And the only giving of gifts that we see in the prophetic events is at the murder of two righteous saints known as the two witnesses when the whole world practices giving gifts to one another and celebrating their death. That doesn't sound like the Christmas that is proposed in the world today, does it? That's not a good thing. So we don't see Christmas in prophecy. We don't see it in the end times. But what we do see is the Feast of Tabernacles. As we've all read many times before, I'm sure, we see the Feast of Tabernacles reinstituted. We see nations required to show up and worship the Lord of hosts and keep the Feast of Tabernacles in Zechariah 14 and 16 through 20. And then, of course, in Revelation, the end of, well, not even the end, <laughs> maybe the end of the beginning, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, we, we hear, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Not Christmas, not the Christmas tree, not any of that practice. The tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This will once again be the actual reality, the real Emmanuel, God with us. 